Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guests today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red donate button. We thank you for your generosity. On December 23rd of 2022, just two days before Christmas, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, announced that it is changing its drug facts label for Plan B, the so-called morning-after pill, to state that the medication, quote, does not alter the course of an existing pregnancy, unquote. In other words, it's not an abortifacient. Pro-life supporters question the truth of the FDA's new messaging and worry about the profound consequences it could have, especially for Catholic healthcare protocols for sexual assault. But what is Plan B? How exactly does it work to prevent pregnancy? And does the FDA's change in messaging really pose a challenge to Catholic healthcare professionals and institutions? Joining me to answer these and other questions is Dr. John Brahaney. John is the NCBC's Executive Vice President and Director of Institutional Relations. John Brahaney, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Uh, it's always uh, great to be on the show, Joe. You know, I'm a a big fan of podcasts, so I listen to a lot, and I feel like I'm giving back a little. <laughs> you do, and we learn a lot from your listening to podcasts. Anyway, John, you have been on the uh, podcast a number of times, so um, we'll we'll dispense with the with the bio. But I am uh, including your your brief bio page from the NCBC on our you know in the show notes. So for people who may not know you, um, that information is there. So, John, let's get right into our questions for today. So first of all. Uh, if we're going to be talking about the the change in the FDA's messaging on Plan B, we need to understand what Plan B is. So what is Plan B? So Plan B contains a chemical uh, called levonorgestrel. It's a synthetic chemical. Uh, it mimics a natural hormone called progesterone. It's actually a progestin. So that gets at its, uh, I'd say, its chemical nature. But when, but when we're talking about Plan B, we're talking about one of those, one of those terms you see a little R by, uh, you know, registered trademark. Um, and in fact, there's a sense in which, even though we we use the shorthand for Plan B, uh, the current name of the product is Plan B One Step. Mm-hmm. So Plan B was a drug that was packaged. It was put, well, created, if you will, uh, and marketed starting in 1999 uh, by Bar Pharmaceutical. And it was known as Plan B until 2013. And uh, over those years, it was a two-dose package. You'd take one mm-hmm. one pill and so many hours later, a second pill, and that's how it was. In 2013, what became Plan B One Step was the two doses were combined into one big pill, uh, and it's taken once. So, so we're I, you know I, again, there's a chemical nature of what we're talking about, and then there's a, a kind of an, an organizational and a marketing uh, piece to it, you know. Right. And I, you know, I myself, as I approach this issue again, I, I keep saying Plan B and. And then I see Plan B one step, you know, is the official name. And I had to kind of 
say, oh, well, what's the difference? Uh, so anyway, that's what it is. Yeah. So essentially, it's an emergency contraceptive. That's what it comes That's down correct. To. And, you know, it was created in the late 90s because interest in using these synthetic hormones to prevent pregnancy on a very short-term basis had been growing through the certainly the 1980s and definitely in the 1990s. And there were other drugs on the market. I recall the name of a drug called Avrol. And uh, I think you and I saw one on a list. I can't even remember the name. From the 90s, you know, it's discontinued. Right. Uh, people would also give say, take extra doses, you know, of your birth control pills. There, there were various things. And what uh, Plan B did, you know, was it, it brought, you might say, a kind of a, a coherent, uh, focused, this is made for the goal in mind. We're not just using extras of something. Uh, and it's been very influential, I think you'd have to say. All right. So specifically for our conversation today, well, maybe not specifically, but most importantly for our conversation today, how is Plan B used in sexual assault protocols? Yeah, it, it comes at, at one stage of a sexual assault protocol. And um, sexual assault protocols are probably, you know, 20-some pages long. When someone is a victim of sexual assault, and, and a female in particular, there are many things that emergency rooms do to respond to them. I mean, there is uh, you know, just basic emergency room care for any injuries, could be any kinds of injuries as part of an assault. There could be specific uh, injuries from the actual sexual nature of the assault. Um, there are forensic uh, issues. In other words, people have to collect evidence, you know, in terms of uh, hairs in terms of bodily fluids, you know, all kinds of stuff. And and somewhere in that protocol, it's, it's like step nine or 10 or issue nine or 10, pregnancy prevention, you know, and that is a standard step in a uh, sexual assault protocol. And it tends to say up to X hours after a sexual assault, give this drug or that drug. And I would say plan B is, is usually the first one mentioned. Another drug, which has a brand name called Ella, and has been around for a while, approved by the FDA also, I think right around 2013 or so, somewhere in that time frame, uh, is often mentioned too. But uh, the standard language is up to 120 hours after a sexual assault, give plan B or give Ella. And it's a pretty short section. Right. And I just want to, to um, underscore the fact that we at the NCBC have seen many, many sexual assault protocols. John, you and I have read many of them in our Catholic Identity and Ethics Review program. So it's it's an issue that, uh, or they're protocols that we are very, very familiar with. John, what are the ethical issues involved with providing Plan B to victims of sexual assault? Yeah, well, I, I would say, uh, you might say there are Many, but let, let's just say we can we can boil them down uh, to two. There is one ethical issue, which is protecting the good, the bodily integrity, uh, the dignity uh, of that victim of sexual assault. I mean, the church teaches that sex only belongs in marriage. Uh, sex should always be 
uh, a consensual act. Uh, and so in a sexual assault, you know, obviously one party uh, has violated that uh, significantly. So, so let's just say protecting uh, the dignity and integrity uh, of the victim of sexual assault uh, is one profound ethical good. And the other profound ethical good uh, is the life uh, and human dignity of any child who is conceived as a result of a sexual assault. So obviously, uh, Plan B is uh, an intervention. It's a it's chemical intervention to try to prevent a pregnancy from occurring, and it is wrong uh, to impregnate someone as, as a result of a of a violent act, uh, a non marital uh, act. That's clearly true. And yet the question then is, but how does that chemical intervention work? And if it works by preventing conception from happening, preventing a woman from even being able to to conceive because uh, ovulation, the production of an egg, has been delayed or it has been inhibited or, or suppressed completely, Uh, If that's what the chemical intervention does, great. If the chemical intervention works by somehow ending the life uh, of a human being who could be minutes or hours old, if it works that way, uh, then that's also a profound ethical issue uh, and something that's wrong. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us briefly, what does the Catholic Church teach about this issue? What are, what are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do in terms of trying to prevent pregnancy in, in, in a situation of a sexual assault? Yeah, let me, I, I, I'm going to uh, respond to that, that question at two levels. Uh, so let's just say that the most and direct and specific teaching that we have comes in the ethical and religious directives. And and let me, I think it would be helpful uh, to just quote the paragraph in the ethical and religious directives. This is directive number 36. And then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how we could view this as church teaching. So let me quote this because I, I think it captures the ethical principles and goods at stake, uh, which actually I just mentioned Uh, in my own words. So this is what it says. A female who has been raped should be able to defend herself against a potential conception from the sexual assault. If after appropriate testing, there is no evidence that conception has occurred already, she may be treated with medications that would prevent ovulation, sperm capacitation, or fertilization. It is not permissible, however, to initiate or to recommend treatments that have as their purpose or direct effect the removal, destruction, or interference with the implantation of a fertilized ovum. So that's the whole thing. Now, I'm not going to start trying to unpack that now. Uh, I think as we discuss what's going on uh, with the FDA and and so on, I think we'll have a chance to revisit some of that. 
But let me say this, the ethical and religious directives themselves are not a form of magisterial teaching. Uh, They are uh, a very well done, very practical distillation of the moral teachings and moral tradition of the church. Uh, The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, which publishes the ERDs, is not a magisterial body. However, I think we can say this that uh, the ERDs have been uh, approved by a vote uh, of, of certainly the great majority uh, of, the, of U.S. bishops, and they have been approved, uh, checked off by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So I think, at least in terms of the moral principles articulated, we could say we could say that uh, you know that th- this is maybe one of the better specific sources of church teaching. There really has been, I would say, no specific teaching from a, a pope or a council, uh, uh, or even the um, congregation uh, for the doctrine of the faith uh, on this topic. Although I, I know. Going back to the uh, 2008 uh, document Dignitas Personae, uh, the congregation certainly cautioned against the use of any uh, drugs that would destroy or harm uh, that early human life. So, um, and and I think people ought to go back and, and look at that section. Uh, that would probably be a, a good place to look. Now, just broader and deeper. Let me let me make two points. Um, you know, if you wanted to look for a summary of the church's teaching on the right to life of even that very that very early human life that that human person conceived as a result of the sexual assault, um, I would look. Uh, at Evangelium Vitae, John Paul II's uh, encyclical. And in there, he says, nothing and no one can in any way permit the killing of an innocent human being, whether a fetus or an embryo. No one is permitted to ask for this act of killing, either for himself or another, uh, or for another person entrusted to his care, nor can he or she consent to it, either explicitly or implicitly, nor can any authority legitimately recommend or permit such an action. So for anyone who would say, ah, you know, based on the size of the, based on the size of that newly conceived human being, you know, or something like that, is it really that important? Should we really care? And I would say, yes. The other thing, and, and you know, I love history, but you can go all the way back to the 200s AD, and people back then, they were dealing with all natural products. They were all vegans, I guess, of one kind or another. But there were people who certainly were interested in contraceptives, but they were interested in any drug that would make sure that someone either didn't uh, get pregnant or stay pregnant. And uh, Tertullian uh, one of the early apologists of the church, and St. Augustine, uh, one of the great fathers uh, of the church, 
in the 200s and in the 400s, respectively, both said, you know, that if you take a drug, um, you're not even sure a human being is there. You're not even sure that if, if, some, if some life has begun, it has become human. When you take a drug accepting, you might say, the consequence that it would not only, uh, it, may, it may prevent the coming to be of new life, it also may end an early life. You're guilty of an abortion. So that certainly is there in the history of the church. So that's, okay. that's what I would say the church teaches. All right. And I just, uh, just a point of a clarification before we move on, if we're going to be talking about plan B, we're going to be talking about it solely in the context of sexual assault. We're not talking about it in the context of consensual sex. Abs and that's a great point because certainly anything you read uh, about plan B, plan B one step, they're always saying this is for use after sexual assault right. or after you forget to use contraception or failure of a contraceptive method. And we are only talking about uh, in the context of sex sexual assault. Good point. Okay. All right. So let's get into what the FDA um, has done. So John, prior to this change from December of 2022, how did the M how did the FDA explain Plan B's mechanism of action? Yeah, and and two things about that. Um, I would say there is what it actually said, uh, the content of that, and and then where it said it. So um, what it said is that Plan B appears to work by either delaying or suppressing ovulation. Then it went on to say two more things. It may inhibit uh, the, the movement or the transport of sperm or have an effect on sperm and or on cervical mucus. And finally, it said it may work by preventing uh, the implantation uh, of a human embryo. So that's what it said. And where it said it, it said it uh, not only in a, in a long uh, scientific memo on this uh, topic, but on the very box that the, the pills would come in, uh, these words uh, were put. You know, and it's just a, a few sentences. It's like three sentences, uh, but but that's what it said, and it was in those two places. Yeah. So just to to kind of summarize that very quickly for our audience, so the first two mechanisms were pre-fertilization. The third me third mechanism is post-fertilization. That's correct. It is post-fertilization, and let's just say, um, yeah. A very specific action because implantation is when an embryo uh, attaches uh, in the uterus and, and begins that process of growth. So, yes, right. very important point. Okay. So, what did the FDA do on December 23rd of 2022 with regard to its messaging on Plan B's mechanism of action? So uh, let's see if I can sort this into three things. So one thing it did was it removed, uh, well, it certainly removed that language about the potential to interfere with implantation. So it certainly did that. It also removed 
language that said Plan B might have something or anything relevant to do with sperm movement or cervical mucus. So there's a sense in which it it removed this language. Then there's the issue of uh, where did it remove the language from, and it not only took it out of its official materials, you might say, but it removed it from uh, anything that was given with the box or on the box uh, of Plan B one step, and it it made a it made a big point about this. It it discussed why it was no longer going to put any language about the mechanism of action of Plan B on that box, you know, where somebody would get it. So um, they were going to locate that information in a consumer information leaflet. Uh, They actually said, we're going to put this in really basic, uh, easy to understand language. I don't know what grade reading level that is, fifth grade or uh, eighth grade or something, and we're not going to put it on the box. The third thing I want to emphasize is the FDA went out of its way to state very formally, very explicitly, Plan B has nothing to do with abortion. Uh, Plan B is not an abortifacient. Uh, And where it had that discussion uh, is on its website page dedicated to Plan B One Step. Uh, On that page, actually, in uh, you know, I would say a, a, a pretty readable form. It actually detailed the history of Plan B, uh, what it was doing, why it was doing it, um, and and that's all on the website. There's also a decisional memorandum, uh, which you can get in a PDF, and it discusses all the evidence. It, it's kind of a different document, but uh, so that's what it did. Uh, it, it's it's complicated, I would say, because it um, it does involve removing some language. Uh, it involves changing where it presents the language, and then there's that emphasis about the issue of abortion. Yeah, some of these, uh, the websites and the decisional memoranda, will link to those in the show notes so people can just click on those uh, instead of having to go and try to find them themselves. John, particularly with regard to the language about Plan B is not an abortifacient and language about, you know, no post-fertilization effects. This is particularly, you know, for us and for, you know, certainly for Catholic healthcare, this is a big change. And I'm wondering what evidence the FDA put forward to justify this change in messaging. Um, yeah, well, the, you know, and and here's an interesting uh, fact from history. Um, twice in the past, in 2006 and in 2009, and there were things going on in those years. Uh, I had said Plan B was approved in 1999, and it became Plan B one step in 2013. What was going on in prior years was the FDA was um, loosening the requirements that you needed a prescription for Plan B. That was part of what was going on. So they, let's just say they were making decisions about Plan B, you know, over the course of more than ten years, you know, before 2013. And twice in that time period, they they were asked 
to not say that Plan B had something to may have something to do with implantation. And both times they refused to uh, to take that action. So that that's kind of interesting. And now we we have the removal of the language, and then we have uh, again very explicit narrative statements. This has nothing to do with the issue of abortion. It turns out it has everything to do, they would say, with ovulation. So uh, what evidence did they use? Well, they went back, they would say, well, we went back and looked at everything before the early 2000s. They, They gave a date of 2003. And then we went and looked at all the evidence after that. Um, it turns out really that most of the relevant so-called new evidence they looked at, well, some of it I would say is not really new. There were a couple, there was an important study in 2011. Remember, they had refused to change the label in 2010. Uh, There was an important study in 2011 in their review of new evidence. They discuss a few articles from 2013, 14, uh, but really, I would say the key evidence that bears on, you might say, wh- how Plan B works and what it might have to do uh, with uh, effects on early human life, most of that evidence comes about 2001 to 2011, I would say. But they would say, we reconsidered all the evidence and in light of that evidence, we're making those changes. Why do you think they made the change now? I mean, you mentioned that twice before the question was asked to them to to change the mechanism. They didn't do it. And now they're changing it today. What why why today? Yeah, and let me let me try to respond uh, I guess the most direct way. I think it's a good question. You know, why would they come out with such a definitive statement at the end of 2022 um, when, again, I think some of the most important studies, and, and they say this themselves, they say, we think these two studies, I think one from 2008, one from 2011, are really key. Okay. I mean, that's good. And maybe we'll mention, uh, say something about those. But um I guess you would think if they were trying to put an end to a 10 plus year controversy, that there would be evidence maybe in the last five years, right? (laughs) Or if some of the studies from that earlier period weren't conclusive, maybe before they made a change like this, they would sponsor new uh, studies, require new studies, something, you know. None of this appears to happen. So when they say we're really looking at new evidence, for the most part, it's evidence running up to about 2011, I guess you could say 2013. Uh, Anyway, so then is there something else that explains it? And, you know, something I saw going back a little over six months as the Supreme Court was considering whether to overturned Roe v. Wade, and we all know that the uh, the decision, the draft decision was leaked mm-hmm. uh, a couple months, you know, I think, uh, before the 
eventual final decision. In that very fevered period of weeks, there were articles circulated saying, hey, you know, what's going to happen if the FDA, uh, I'm sorry, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade? If if Plan B, if the FDA is saying Plan B may have something to do with abortion, then that is going to give, you know, uh, the authority to states to say we want to limit uh, access to this drug. And and these writers and commentators were saying, man, somebody better get the FDA to change its language. The, the company that owns it ought to ask it. The FDA you know, they've been dragging their feet on this issue and things are about to get really hot. So, uh, you know, and then I would say about six months later, uh, on the Friday before Christmas, you know, late afternoon, uh, I know a lot of things come out in uh, in Washington, D.C. on a Friday, Friday afternoon, afternoon evening, right? But uh, the FDA comes out with this uh, decision. Now, clearly, they had worked on it. They had been working on it. Uh, it was not a one-line statement or something like that. But I have to say, it's a question in my mind, uh, especially, I guess, I would say, if they were going to try to resolve a very complex issue, uh, and and clearly, uh, Catholics have a stake in this issue, but we're not the only ones. There are a lot of people who recognize the difference between preventing a conception and ending an early human life. A lot of people recognize that's a very different issue. And if you if you tell them that honestly, openly, with evidence, they are definitely going to think twice. So I guess... I wonder, um, you know, it, it's a good question. Uh, I don't think uh, the FDA is going to maybe dig beneath their public statements, though, and saying why they did it at this time. Yeah. Jack, can I, I'm going to ask you what may be an unfair question and tell me, you know, feel free to tell me if it's an unfair question, because I know you're not a medical researcher. This isn't your, you know, this isn't your area of expertise. But when you were speaking just now, the, the question popped into my mind, has the in making this change this this language change has the fda offered any definitive evidence that plan b doesn't have a post fertilization effect or are they simply going back to the research that they had before and and making the change based on that i'm wondering is there something concrete that the fda pointed to in making this change yeah. And this is, uh, I'm glad uh, I, I wanted to say at the beginning, remind people I'm not <laughs> a medical doctor or a biologist, uh, you know, or or any any other kind of scientific person. I, And in fact, for years, this was not really an issue I focused upon. Uh, at, at the NCBC, uh, we have Mar Marie Hilliard as a senior fellow now, but for years was kind of the point person on this issue for us. And, and I and you have really encountered this issue more uh, as a matter of institutional ethics, mm -hmm. you know, than you might say focusing on, a, I guess, this narrowly and digging down into the, the science. But uh, this allows me to, to point to the complexity of the issue at hand. So let me, let me put it this way. Um, I think the FDA was able to engage some studies and resolve some questions about FDA in uh, about Plan B, sorry, Plan B 
one step in a way that it hadn't really before, maybe because it was focused on opening this pill up, you know, to more and more women. First, it was over 17. Then it was over maybe 15 or 16. You know, then it was like anybody can get it. Uh, I suppose even three-year-olds or something. I don't know. But um, anyway, um, I think they were able to look at some evidence that had been out there for several years and help to resolve some issues. <laughs> However, I will also say they failed to address another important issue. Uh, and I, I think we can really wonder if they rushed something here. So let me, let me speak to what they resolved with some legitimacy. And, and I've seen general agreement even among some good pro-life doctors who really are OBGYNs uh, and so on. So uh, we've mentioned the issue already. Does Plan B have an effect on sperm or cervical mucus? This is even sort of referenced in the ERDs. You know, you can you can take a drug that might affect or or uh, prevent sperm capacitation. And actually, the evidence had been floating out there for a number of years that Plan B has no effect or no relevant effect on sperm or cervical mucus. Now, that was in the FDA's product insert right up to December 22nd, uh, 2022. It seems that the evidence overturning that was available, let's just say for 10 years plus at that point. The other interesting issue is, does Plan B, 11 orgestrol, uh, affect the very process of implantation. Now, I think some people studied this in a lab, and we would say they didn't study it by an ethical means because they were trying to get human embryos to attach to endometrial tissue in, you know, lab dishes. But anyway, I think, and I've checked in with some faithful, uh, pro-life, qualified uh, doctors they think the evidence is clear that Plan B does not affect the issue, the process of implantation itself in in a very direct way. You might say the moment, the hours, if you will, of implantation. And and I hope I'm describing that accurately. I'm I'm certainly open to correction on that point. So let's just say when you asked. You know, was is it fair? Did they really do it? Let's just say they formally addressed some issues for which there was some good evidence that that bore on the question. So, what did they not do? And I would say uh, they did not address a question that had been out there that was stated very clearly in a research article that they at least cite. They don't discuss it. It's an article in the Lineker Quarterly in 2016. It's in the list of articles that they, they cited. Uh, again, no discussion. But the issue is, here, here is the issue, um, and I'll, I'll try to do this right. What you get at the end of the day, and at the end of the FDA's memo, uh, and website stuff is they say 
plan B one step works entirely on ovulation. It either delays it or it stops it. That is its mechanism of action. That's the only way they say it works. Now, what's the problem with that? I would say the problem with that is there is good evidence in the Lineker article I cited, which simply went through 11 studies that were out there in the scientific literature, which the FDA discussed, actually formally mentioned and cited. But those 11 articles show, and you need, you need to look at all the, the numbers, is it matters the, the timing of when you give plan B one step relative to ovulation matters. Uh, if you give it five plus days, or let's just say about five days before ovulation, it can delay or suppress ovulate. Uh, yeah, delay or suppress ovulation ninety percent of the time. If you give it four to three days before ovulation, and we're averaging now eleven studies, that overall effectiveness falls to maybe forty percent overall. Mm-hmm. If you give it two to one day before ovulation, the average falls to 8% before ovulation. So, and I think it's, it's really wrong, and I do think this is a critical issue for informed consent. The FDA, you know, in eighth grade language or whatever it is, uh, is going to tell women, this only works on ovulation. Real simple. However, what they're not addressing, and the evidence is all over the place, right in front of their eyes, that it really matters when relative to ovulation you give it. And if you're given it one to two days before, then it practically doesn't prevent ovulation at all. And that, that's a key point, I think. And, and I would and will fault the FDA on that. I, I think that is a real problem, I would say, just of, of scientific integrity, right? You say, oh, it works this way, and, and you don't address the fact that, no, actually, it's, it's very much time-specific. The second issue is closely related, and this gets to the heart of why anybody should care about it, but let's just say anybody who is Catholic or pro-life or Christian, anybody who cares about the dignity of early human life. There are a couple of studies, and the FDA specifically says, we think these studies, and um, one of them is by a researcher called Noe, N-O-E. She actually did two articles. I think they're part of one big study in 2010 and 11. And uh, the FDA cites her, oh, this is a very powerful article. But what she showed, she was not only studying when did you give Plan B to women Uh, relative to ovulation, but she was also studying women who had sexual intercourse during the fertile window. And I should also say she not only studied plan B giving to women before ovulation, but on the day of ovulation and after. So, and none of these studies uh, you'd have to say are ideal, 
Sometimes you know, scientists are studying one little feature of a problem, but this one by no way, I think, did get to some critical issues. And, and this is what she found uh, that was very, very interesting. Let me start with the women who got plan B on the day of ovulation or after and were known to have sexual intercourse in that time period. Plan B appeared to have no effects that they could tell. They said, well, if women had sexual intercourse in this time period and um, uh, got nothing or a placebo, we'd expect about eight pregnancies to result based on the number of women in the study. It turns out women who got plan B on the day or a day after ovulation had about eight pregnancies. The reason I, I bring that up is to say it appears that at or after ovulation, plan B doesn't affect things, right? That, for example, it may have no effect on the actual biological process of implantation. But the critical issue is women who got it before ovulation and had sexual intercourse. Now, one thing they were able to demonstrate of that set of women who, who got it days before ovulation, 80%, roughly 80% of them ovulated. And they actually clinically examined them and could answer that question in terms of, of evidence. I think they used ultrasound. So they know that, let's just say, three quarters plus of the women actually ovulated and they got plan B. Now, if w women had gotten a placebo, they would have expected 16 pregnancies. There were zero pregnancies. So that's really interesting. You, uh, the study documented that when they got plan B, I don't know, I, they might have gotten down and listed all the days, I can't remember, but they documented this group, it's all before ovulation. So we've documented that. They all, had, you know, a bunch of them had sexual intercourse. We confirm ovulation in the vast majority of cases, preponderance of cases, you would think maybe there'd be some pregnancies, you know, uh, or something. It turns out there were zero. And there was another complementary study, fewer people, but showed the same thing. So what it appears to show is when you give plan B before ovulation, especially immediately before ovulation, its ability to suppress or delay ovulation falls dramatically. And now we know if you give it in that time period, it doesn't stop ovulation, but it does something to eliminate any new lives so that the egg is out there. So that, I would say, is the heart of the concern. It's a good question how to resolve that concern, but I think we're going to turn now to how might this FDA decision be used, you know, and, um, and what maybe Catholic health institutions and professionals should be doing. Yeah. It sounds like from what you said, there may not be a smoking gun, but there seems to be evidence to demonstrate there is a post-fertilization effect. Yeah, absolutely. In other words, you're allowing ovulation to take place. 
sexual intercourse is taking place, let's just take the FDA's word for it, Plan B has no effect on sperm or egg, and yet where you would expect 16 pregnancies, you get zero. Right. Not, not eight, not 10% less, you get zero. And it does suggest that something significant is going on. Yes. This concludes part one of my interview with John Brahaney. In part two, John discusses the impact the FDA's new Plan B messaging may have for Catholic healthcare, particularly with regard to sexual assault protocols. He will also discuss the impact of this new messaging on emerging state laws regarding such protocols. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.